So I just had a birthday recently, so when I talk about being 25 in this episode, note that I'm actually 26. And as my gift to all of you, I'm bringing you back a modern fantasy classic of sorts, beloved by so many people, except probably me. But hey, I have some good reasons. Hear me out on this. And if you're one of those people that love this book, don't worry, my guest is on your side. Welcome to your favorite book. This week's guest is the host of Barely Bookish. Rachel, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing pretty well. It is exciting to have you on the show today. And so, Rachel, I always love talking to fellow podcasters. So can you tell us a little bit about you and about this podcast you have? Yeah, sure. Well, hello. Uh, my name is Rachel. I run the Barely Bookish podcast. Basically, I was such a avid gigantic nerd that I made it my entire personality. So um, with that in mind, I was essentially told a lot of the time, oh, how come you haven't read this book yet? How come you haven't read this book yet? So I just started a podcast of all the books I haven't read, which is basically everything in classic literature, because I um, grew up going to a school where they assumed you'd already read it. So Mm -hmm. then I never read anything. So now I'm reading classic literature as an adult, which is very fun because I don't get the uh, sort of uh, glamorization of it that you get a lot of the times in schools. So yeah, that's kind of the podcast. We read modern classics, classic literature. Um, We've done Pride and Prejudice. We did Fahrenheit 451, 1984. A lot of those that most people probably read in school growing up. Um, And yeah, that's basically the podcast. That's really cool, though, because I feel like even if you've read a certain number of classics in school, you probably haven't read all of them. I mean, school curriculums vary so much, or even if you read it in, say, eighth grade, chances are you don't remember it now, and maybe you don't even want to revisit it as an adult when it might be a better book once you're older. Yeah, absolutely. It was. It's honestly very strange reading some books because um, I realized that with Little Women, I didn't especially like it, but I realized a lot of that is that people like it because it has a lot of nostalgia value Mm. Um, and they read it as kids. And without having that, I kind of felt like I was missing something while I was reading it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, Oh, why do people love this book so much? It's just a lot of morals. And I was like, Oh, because it's designed for children, not grown adult women who are already, you know, taught all their morals. Got it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking back on classics. I enjoy Pride and Prejudice comes to mind. And recently my husband read The Great Gatsby for the first time and he hadn't read it in school and he had a completely different take on it. He noticed completely different things other than like the things you're taught in school about the book. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just actually read that one for the first time. Uh, I didn't obviously read it in school either. And you know, I kind of, while I was reading that, I was like, wow, they let kids read this in school. Like a lot happens in this book that I would think they would kind of, you know, want to shelter children from. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of interesting. It's a lot of that's been happening while I read these books, like Fahrenheit 451, 1984, um, a lot of those more modern classics. I'm like, wow, it's weird. They let kids read this, you know, because I feel like they always try and shelter Um, high schoolers in their reading material and they don't stock things in, you know, libraries that they feel like are in a morally gray area. And yet these are modern classics. And I'm like, hmm, wonder, wonder why that is. 
I think it feels like you just like slap the classic label onto something and you forgive all kinds of transgressions that say, you know, a fantasy book or just a young adult book can say similar stuff, but then it's banned from the library because it's not a classic. And I don't know, it, the whole like classic terminology, it's it's dated, it's focused on a certain type of writer, a certain type of story, it neglects, you know, diversity, it, defects, it sort of ignores, you know, women in publishing, writers of color, there's so many gaps with how we think about classics. So it's really great to sort of mm-hmm. approach them with fresh eyes. Yeah, which is why I have an hour and a half roast on H.P. Lovecraft and his uh, term of and his use of the word cults and basically putting everything that's not Christian based as a cult. So mm-hmm. if you want a good, good roast, there's a HP Lovecraft episode uh, on the call of Cthulhu in which um, I, and a guest basically come to terms with the fact that uh, Cthulhu is truly just a deity. He doesn't understand. And since it's not Christian based, HP Lovecraft has problems with it, which, okay, I'm not going to get into it because I can go on that subject and that tangent forever. Truly. <laughs> so definitely check out the rant on that. I know so little about HP Lovecraft other than the fact that he's like not a nice guy. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, it's let me tell you, his not niceness is very obvious in his work. If you read, <laughs> honestly, if you read a Call of Cthulhu, it'll probably take you like an hour. It's not very long, but it'll tell you everything you need to know about who he is as a person. And it's not a lot of good things. That makes a lot of sense. It's it's one of the genres I typically haven't gotten into. And we're going to get into that a bit with this book, how I've kind of mm-hmm. neglected sci-fi and fantasy for so long. But before we get to that, Rachel, can you tell us about some of the you know biggest challenges you've had running a podcast and maybe some of the biggest rewards? Sure. Well, my podcast is still pretty new. I actually only launched in October um, in the middle of you know, quarantine because I didn't have a lot else to do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I know, right? It's quarantine's weird. It's super weird. I just started new hobbies and yeah, my cousin started baking bread and I was like, I'm going to start a podcast. And she's like, what? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's happening either. But yeah, it's been fun. Honestly, I think my biggest challenge is the fact that I really, really, really love reading which means that I scheduled a lot of episodes, not really thinking about how long they take. And now I'm pre-recorded um, 20 weeks out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I don't really know how that happened. Um, but people are like, oh, I'd love to read a book with you. And I'm like, let's do it. And let's do it this month. And then I had four different books I was reading in December, all recording at the same time. Oh my gosh. This sounds so familiar though, because I run into similar situations, except for me, I'm not recording that far ahead of time most of the time, but often I'm like down to the wire. Oh no, I'm recording tomorrow. I'm 200 pages behind. Let's read, read, read. <laughs> it's just a change. I was actually rereading this book this morning and yesterday and in my head I had it set. So I have, um, I'm pretty sure we're like, I'm dyslexic, but we never got the test done, mm. but I have a lot of the symptoms, but you know, Basically, what happened is I, I switched numbers around a lot in my head. So and I had it stuck that this was 350 pages. And I was like, I can read that in a day. <laughs> Not a problem. And I'm like poking it off my shelf. And I'm like, yeah, because I got the paperback version. So, you know, it looks kind of thinner. Yeah. And then I like pull it out and I'm like reading through it. I'm like, wow, this is taking me a while. And I look at the back. And I'm like, oh, it's 530. 
oh whoops <laughs> yeah so I spent all day reading it again whatever oh my gosh I I picked this book up from the library and I I knew it was a fantasy novel so I'm like okay kind of long and I was like 570 pages and I'm like oh that's so long I'm generally someone who reads shorter books but I've done two fantasy episodes of this show before. One was Shadow and Bone, which is a pretty short book, like just the first book in that series, pretty quick. And then on the other hand, I read The Prior of the Orange Tree, which is like a behemoth of a book that's like almost 900 pages or something crazy like that. And that took me months to read. And I'm like, I could do this. It's halfway in between these two. And yeah, definitely more broachable than that one was. <laughs> Yeah, I still haven't read it. It's sitting on my bookshelf. I look at it every day and I'm like, one day I'll get to you. But I, I told myself, because I'm like very avid on book talk, I told myself that I'd read the Throne Glass series first. Mm. And I still haven't gotten to that. But A Court of Silver Flames came out. So I'm binging that right now. And then I was like, oh, I have a recording on Wednesday. So I should probably switch. <laughs> you know, whatever. I read fast. And then I was like, oh, no, I don't read this fast. Whoops. Oh, my gosh. And the thing I often run into is like I interview people about favorite books and things like that. And then I'm like, when do I have time to read the things I want to read? And it's like with the podcast now, I'm like, maybe never. Who knows? <laughs> I know. I made it. I made this mostly my full-time job right now because I got other part-time jobs and things like that but I do this uh the most so which is what allowed me to get 20 weeks in the head but now that I'm 20 weeks ahead I basically am allowing myself to actually have a little bit of a break and actually read the books I enjoy again um which is how I binged from blood and ash in a kingdom of flesh and fire oh read them in two days not no probably about three days but Oh, so good. That's so nice, though. I just want to sit and read all day. And my job actually does come into this. I, I promise I'm going to be talking about my day job in a bit, and it is relevant, I promise. But before we get to all of that, um, what are we talking about here? So the book we're talking about today is A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness, and we are discussing book one of this trilogy. So for longtime listeners, if you heard my Shadow and Bone episode heard me talk to my good friend Coda Connell-Ledwan and how she begged me to read trilogies and series. And I'm like, I am one person. I do not have a lot of time. We will do book ones in trilogies. And that is the policy we're sort of going forward with in your favorite book. And so I don't know anything that happens in the next two books of this trilogy. I believe it's called the All Souls Trilogy. Um, Rachel is going to do her best to avoid spoilers for not only this book, but the other two books. Uh, we'll reference them as needed, but we're going to keep our discussion mostly to book one. And so if you haven't read this book before, this is a fantasy novel that came out in 2011. Uh, for a little summary, in this in this novel, Harkness uh, combines magic, history, and science to the story of Diana Bishop, a historian and a powerful witch from a storied family of witches. Diana encounters a long-lost manuscript, Ashmole 782, which sparks her long-suppressed powers and attracts the attention of magical creatures worldwide. These creatures include Matthew Claremont, an ancient vampire, and although love is forbidden between their species, Diana and Matthew attempt to find a way. And so that's a little summary of this book. It covers way more than I managed to mention here, but Rachel, I'd love to hear from you first. Can you tell us about when you first found this book and what your overall impressions were? Okay, I can remember specifically when I first found this book. I, my grandparents had a really small library that was right by or not library but it was a bookstore it was a used bookstore 
And I just watched The Book of Life, okay, mm-hmm. which is the, um, is it Pixar animated movie? It's not Pixar. It's um, similar. It's, I think Coco came out mm-hmm. from Pixar and it's like similar to The Book of Life, but I don't remember who did The Book of Life. Mm-hmm. Anyways, when that came out, I was absolutely obsessed with the movie. Um, I actually have not rewatched it, so now this kind of feels like I'm lying. But I was obsessed at the time. I loved the I loved the story. I thought it was super cute. It made me cry. Um, so I go to this bookstore and I look. I'm looking through the whole bookstore and I see the book and it's called The Book of Life. And I'm like, perfect. I didn't know there was a book on this movie. Awesome. So I grab that book, go home start reading it. And I'm like, who are these people? None of this makes sense. So I actually bought the third book before I even knew there was two previous books um, in this trilogy, uh, which really messed me up because I'm reading it. And I'm like, this doesn't seem like a beginning. Like, are we going to flashback? And then I had to Google and find out that this was the third book in this series. (laughs) So that's why I started reading the first two. So this series to me, honestly felt like it scratched the same itch that Twilight did mm-hmm. when I was like in middle school, mm-hmm. but it felt like these characters actually existed. Whereas in Twilight, like I, I really liked it growing up. And then when it got really popular and everyone was making fun of me, I was like, oh, I never liked Twilight. Not me. <laughs> not I. Who, who reads Twilight? Not I. <laughs> but I felt like this book was very much one of those stories that. I felt like I could run into Diana on the street. Mm -hmm. I could, you know, see Matthew being a business CEO in a company and apply for a job there kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's just one of the, it was the first book that to me really felt like these characters were real instead of otherworldly. Whereas in a lot of urban fantasy novels, they make it so that all the characters have their own world outside of humanity that humanity doesn't get to see. Hmm. So I thought this was an interesting take where it's, you know, hiding in plain sight, everyone exists in the real world and there's no secret other world that everyone has to constantly escape to. It's like an underground organization. I think that's really what drew me into this novel so much. That's really interesting. Yeah. Cause I I do admit I I'm not someone who reads a lot of fantasy, but yeah, I did like that idea of, you know, they're in plain sight And similarly to how you talk about Twilight, that's one of the things I liked about, even though Harry Potter, it was its own world, they did feel like sort of integrated into the human population in many ways. And so there is something appealing about thinking that you can see these characters anywhere. Yeah, she actually released a almost like a textbook compendium um, where it like highlight it's you read about each of the species as if it's like a textbook because um I don't know if you know anything about the author but she's a historian and teacher at I believe SoCal Mm -hmm. I think um so she's very much coming from a teaching background and I think medieval literature or medieval history is her specialty so you can kind of see that a lot in her work is that she draws on real life events, which gets even more noticeable throughout the trilogy. Yeah, I can definitely pick up that history is her passion. It comes through in the prose. It's one of the things I did like about this story. And it, it, it is telling that this is something she enjoys. I mean, there's that aspect of, you know, making your main character a historian the way she does, too. It's obvious that the passion is there. And so, Rachel, I'm interested in knowing, um, have people 
you know, taking you up on it if you've recommended it to other people? You know, is this a book that people have picked up when you've suggested it? I've actually gotten two people to read it so far. So one of my, um, she used to be my previous coworker and now we've just become really good friends. But she just finished it after I recommended it to her about two years ago. And I was texting her yesterday. I was like, wow, I'm reading this for the podcast. And I was thinking about you. And she goes, OMG, I just finished it literally yesterday. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and like she's it? absolutely obsessed with it because, <laughs> yeah, she loved it. But I know some, my, I try to get my youngest sister to read it and it was too slow for her because it does have a kind of slow start. Mm-hmm. And I think that deters, uh, uh, deters sorry, a lot of readers mm-hmm. is that it takes a while to get into the meat. Like even the first whole book is kind of a setup yeah. to the juice that's in the second and third book. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I got the feeling that there was so much to set up in book one that there's obviously a trilogy here. There's obviously more to come. Especially if you're really into history, history, you will absolutely love the second book. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a history junkie, so much happens in the second book um, that it's really, really fascinating because, you know, where we end the first book, it, it kind of leads you to believe where we'll go in the second book. And the second book is phenomenal. That's good to know. Yeah. I, I, as someone who doesn't read a lot of trilogies, I'm always wondering, you know, I think about like movie trilogies and they're always like the second one in the movie trilogy is always the worst, but it's good to know that the second one is a lot in, especially if you're a a history buff. So that is good to keep in mind. And so Rachel, has this book kind of changed for you over the years? Like, have you reread it and found your opinions and feelings toward it change? I actually don't normally reread books. They just kind of like sit in my memory and I love them and I look at them on my shelf and I'm like, huh, yes. It's like a touchstone, you know? Um, But I reread it for this recording. And I think the thing for me that kind of changed is it kind of felt like I was coming back to where I was when I read this book. Mm -hmm. Like at this point, this is the big turning point into uh, more of my adult literature. Like up until that point, I mainly just read YA I hadn't really divulged. This is my first book that didn't feel creepy in a way because, you know, you have an ancient vampire and then everybody inevitably puts it with a high school student. Mm. And I'm like, why? Like at the time I read that I was in high school. Yeah, I was in high school, but I I got tired of reading the same old stories where it was like damsel in distress, can't take care of yourself, high school human kind of thing. Mm. And I felt like this very much changed the game for me to know that there was other options out there. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's definitely not a YA book. And I'll talk about how at times I was kind of, you know, wondering who this book was for. But it's clearly this isn't YA. I mean, I, I thought it was refreshing that, you know, Diana, for example, is in her 30s. Like, it's nice seeing adult women, adult women characters in fantasy, you know, with jobs and lives of their own taking on these stories. Yeah, it's very much new adult, even though she is in her 30s. Mm-hmm. So it's it's right at that cusp of, okay, we're out of YA. Here's this next stepping stone before you go into um actual adult literature which usually involves like oh they're married already those kinds of things Mm. whereas this is still the branch I feel like in the two realms of literature got it got it that makes sense I mean honestly if you had made her any younger she couldn't have been a tenured professor at Yale so (laughs) 
I know. I always, when I read this too, I think because I was, I was in high school, I felt very connected to Diana because I felt like, oh, I have my whole world ahead of me, which, you know, it's kind of sad to think about now, but, um, (laughs) and I just, I like the idea that the woman protagonist is not someone who's just kind of sitting waiting for someone. Yeah. Like she has her entire life. She's a tenured professor. She went to Yale. Well, she works at Yale. She's studying in Oxford on research, all these cool, fun, interesting things she's doing with her life that don't involve her being in a relationship. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's definitely refreshing to see. And it was one of the things I liked about the book. I really liked the setup. I liked the establishment of these characters, but sort of to structure my overall opinion here. And Rachel, I was telling you this, you know, before we got started, while there were things I really did like about the book, I think this is one of those instances where the book wasn't really for me personally. And I mean, we can attribute that to genre. I mean, I'm not a big fantasy reader. There were a few, you know, sticking points about this book in particular. Um, I've had books on the show that I haven't liked before. So if you all have listened to the show and you heard my episode on Juliet by Anne Fortier, uh, Raina Patel and I talked about how that wasn't really for me either, but it was for Raina. She loved it. And not everybody reads like me. And that's one of the things we embrace about this show. Truly. But there's some books that are very popular that I still don't really love. And I don't personally really like mm-hmm. An Ember in the Ashes. I feel guilty saying it. I really do. But it's just a mixed match reader. I Okay. My most toxic trait is that I do not read the back cover of books before I start them. Ooh. So I always... Yeah, I always go in with a surprise. I basically, as long as someone recommends it to me, I basically read it, which has meant that I've read a lot of books that are not really my style, Mm. but I do it to myself. So I just personally didn't like An Ember in the Ashes just because it was a little dark for my taste Mm -hmm. and I'm not much of a, I don't really like dark stories personally, but I felt really bad when I didn't like it because I was like, oh, everyone's like gushing about it. But I just I want to escape reality, Mm. not just like be kind of sad. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the world is sad enough. Like, (laughs) yeah. Plus, I read it at the very beginning of quarantine, which is probably the main problem. I feel like that was a bad time. Oh, yeah. You got to read like happy, happy romance, happy, happy books for such a bleak time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so... I want to start by talking about the things I did really like about this book. And we've alluded to some of it. You know, I like that these are adult characters with lives. You know, this isn't high school romance the way we typically see with, you know, witches and vampires and things. But I think the thing I liked most about this book was just the aesthetic of it. Like, I am a sucker for, like, the Oxbridge Library, Dark Academia. Like, this book felt like Dark Academia the book. And I loved that. Absolutely. Every time... I just think about being at a library with like old manuscripts or when we get to see his personal library. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I can envision it. I feel it. it's all dark hardwood, you know, it's just gorgeous leather volumes, gold edges, everything. Oh, yeah. love it so much. It's like a musty smell and comfortable chairs and like, you know, beautiful ancient books. And I used to work in conservation at my college library. So we were always handling these old manuscripts. And it was just like the best college job ever. I just loved being at the library all the time and just drinking that in. And this book definitely hits all of those aesthetic points. So while the, you know, the beginning and the setup can be slow plot wise, I actually really liked the beginning because it 
I just got to explore that happy, you know, warm library world. And I really liked that. Yeah, I did too. I, I personally really liked the beginning because I have a problem sometimes with books that just kind of throw you in and they're like, figure it out. And I'm like, okay, can you like give me some idea of where we are first? And they're like, no, <laughs> figure it out. Great. And I'm like, whoa, okay, we're in the middle of a battle. That's what's happening. Who is the war from? You know, where? who's the enemy? Who's the good guy? Are you the good guy? Mm. And so I just really like that this one's like, so she's hanging in the library and I'm like, okay, we're hanging in the library. <laughs> Yeah, it's just nice to get to know your environment a little more, get to know your characters, gives us some time. We get to know Diana by herself for a while, which I really appreciate. Like Matthew doesn't come in until a bit later. We have some time to sort of see, you know, how she exists in this world, which is great. I loved Diana's nerdiness. I loved the historical details of this book. And plot-wise, there were a lot of, you know, twists and turns. It keeps you going through the book. You stay invested. It is definitely a page turner, even if this isn't your genre. So there were a lot of things to like about this book. Absolutely. Also, I just should throw in really quick. There is a TV series that's currently being produced. The first season's out. I think the second season is currently coming out, but yeah, it's, it's really good. And honestly, every single character looks as they were described in the book, which is uncommon. And I really like it. So if you like the book, check out the TV series. It's on like Sundance. It's a British TV show. So there's a lot of British channels that it's on, but I can't remember all the American ones. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. They never make the characters look the way you want them to. Um, so that's pretty interesting. And I like that, you know, a fan of the book can still like the show because I feel like, you know, adaptations, you either like the show or you like the book, never both. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like this show is very close to the book too, which never happens. So I haven't seen the second season at all. I just watched the first one so far, but it's, it was really good. And honestly, I did, when I saw who played Matthew, I didn't think it was like perfect but as he played the character further I was like oh no never mind this guy's perfect (laughs) that makes sense you got to see him in the role a little bit and so now for the Mm -hmm. the not so fun part so some of the things that didn't quite work for me here and Rachel please feel free to fight me if I've got any bad takes or if something gets addressed (laughs) later on in the series like I want to know that because these were some Mm -hmm. of the things that stood out I'm going to say that some of these, you know, concern the characterization. Some of them are about the organization of the book. The last one at the very end is more of a personal pet peeve. Mm-hmm. And I fully admire, I fully admit that as I talk about okay. it. So last critique I have is a pet peeve. But to start with the first one, I think the thing most people point out about this book, which Rachel, you and I were talking about before, is the dynamic between Diana and Matthew, specifically Matthew's possessiveness, mm-hmm. Matthew sort of, you know, taking his role as the alpha male of the vampires and not really respecting Diana's agency all the time. I think it's kind of inconsistent. There are some really tender moments. There are some really good moments where he's listening to her and going with what she wants, but there are some controlling moments here that can make this a little uncomfortable and dare I say a little twilighty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will say that this kind of gets brought up later. So if you notice that like Miriam's not that way, the other vampires aren't really that way. It's something that Matthew specifically does have to deal with. And I personally, I, I, I will admit it's problematic 
and I don't like this in real people, but I, I personally felt like it's kind of fitting with the vampire genre, just because I feel like a lot of these vampires are in books overly romanticized. Mm. And I think Deborah Harkness kind of took it this way. Like you should not overly romanticize this. This is problematic. This is what they're like. And if you can't work with that, like this is something that people should know about vampires. Like I think Matthew is very self-reflective of that Mm -hmm. throughout the series kind of thing. And he doesn't really love that about himself, but it's also something that there's a reason why I think it gets brought up in the second book. It gets touched on more. Um, So there is a reason, but it's, I also just think it's one of those things where I feel like vampires would be that way when you're the alpha top of the food chain type of thing. Um, And you know, there's no one that can possibly go against you. You kind of are a little possessive. And especially because he thinks, oh, she's this fragile, weak human that can very easily die. I feel like I would also kind of be possessive in that situation because, you know, everything is out to get you. I kind of feel like it's like, um, you know, like when mothers have their newborn babies and they're sitting there, they're looking at this child and they're like, a cough could hurt you a sneeze in your direction could hurt you. And you have that, like, I, I'm not a mother, but like, from what I've been told is you have that moment of being like, Oh, like I am in charge of this person, this one child that cannot defend himself. And I feel like he kind of has this moment where he's looking at Diana that way. And it does get better throughout the trilogy. Um, but that's one of the things that I think isn't talked about enough in vampire novels is just that they want these vampires to suddenly be like, good people who've never done anything bad in their 8,000 years they've been alive or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, he has character flaws. He's done a lot of things. He's morally gray. And that's kind of why I like him as a character. That makes sense. Yeah, I I definitely did like knowing that. I mean, the man, they find out he's been alive. This is a small spoiler, but not a big deal. He's been alive for 1,500 years. Like, that's a long time. And like, Mm -hmm. you're not going to expect, you know, he's killed, he's you know, had other women in his life. He's made mistakes. There's all sorts of, you know, transgressions that he's had. And I do see that paternalism that you're kind of referring to. I think the issue that I have with it is it's good to know that this does, this arc does continue, you know, later on in the trilogy. And it's one of the pitfalls of only reviewing book one in a trilogy. You don't get to see the whole arc. I think the only issue I see is we're, we're built Diana as like such a powerful character. Not only is she, you know, an accomplished historian, she's, you know, obviously her witch's power, she's not quite comfortable in them for a while, but she's a tremendous amount of power in her own right. And at times, I guess I just kept wondering how quickly her and her and Matthew kind of developed and how quickly she was to sort of succumb to a lot of his, you know, a lot of his possessiveness. I, there was pushback. I guess I just wanted more pushback from her. Yeah. I think if I remember correctly in the other two books, there's a lot more. Mm. Um, But again, it's one of those things that kind of does get explained more, Mm -hmm. which is a lot better than a lot of series where they're like, ah, it's fine. Just don't think about it too much. (laughs) I feel like with this one, it's, it continues to get explained. And also I kind of think about the fact that Matthew hasn't been with a woman for like 200 years. So he doesn't really know how to act anymore, like around people because he's mostly just been by himself or with other vampires. So I kind of allow it for book one. And then I think he, while he's still a little possessive, 
he's more understanding as he grows and ha- as he develops his relationship with Diana in the future books. Yeah. And I, I did like seeing his melancholy about losing loved ones. And it's one of those things. So for listeners of my podcast, if you heard my episode with Susan Rubin, which talked about the Simone de Beauvoir novel, All Men Are Mortal, essentially it features a man who is immortal and he, he's alive a lot less time than Matthew is. I think he, you know, he was born in the 1300s, but it's still, you know, several hundred years. And they basically show just the, the the amount of loss he's faced, you know, and how it's easier to just be by yourself, because especially if you fall in love with people that are mortal, their lives end. And there is just that constant tragedy. And at a certain point, there's like, how much more can you learn? So Matthew was an interesting contrast because he's still hungry for knowledge. He's still searching for things. But there is that sort of pushback when you're immortal. It's like, what more is there for you when there's just nothing but loss? Yeah, I feel like he's Matthew asks a lot of the same questions that early people of his time would have asked, which is, why are we all here? It's the question that plagues humanity. It's the reason we develop religions. We study science. We, you know, go through all of this teaching to figure out what's our meaning in life. And I think it's interesting to see even a vampire still doesn't understand why he's here, why he was put on this earth, why this species is created. And I just think even after 1500 years of searching, it's still like a question that plagues humanity and plagues vampires and plagues all the species across the world. Everyone wants to know why we're here. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And we're going to come back to that thought of, you know, him searching for the why are we are here question and how science is integrated into this book. But before I get to that, I want to talk a little bit about the writing style of this book. To me, there were times where the style really worked. So we talked about, you know, the atmosphere that Harkness creates. That's really great. But we get on one hand, these lush descriptions. And then sometimes we get these lines that just take me out of the book and make me wonder, who is this book for? So there's sentences that are thrown in like, how do you talk to a vampire at seven in the morning? And like, just these very like removed lines that feel very YA. They they kind of age down the book a little bit or some of the on the nose dialogues that are going on. And I, I wanted Harkness to sort of take her audience a little more seriously. Like you could have just gone full forth and made this for adults, but there were still some of those lines that held it back. Yeah, I will say this is her only fantasy like she doesn't she's not normally a writer she writes research um so this is her actually her only series so i feel like and this was her very first book so Mm -hmm. i think having that in mind it's one of those things where it's like oh as a new writer you're not really sure where to go right um so i think that's kind of probably the reason but i definitely can see that I haven't written a book. I I try, but it's like writing a book is so hard, everybody. Like we critique books all the time, but writing is so hard. (laughs) Oh, trust me. I know. I write short stories now. And sometimes people will be like, uh, send this to me and they'll be like, where's the rest of it? And I'm like, what do you mean the rest of it? That's all I've got. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Short stories are hard too, because you know, you have to tell a complete story in a small amount of time and not waste words, not waste time. So both of the art forms just have their difficulties. Mm-hmm. I've been doing um, micro stories that I just published for free on my website, um, but I leave all of them open-ended because I really like stories that you have to wonder. Mm. Um, but I've realized that readers hate that. Readers want a concise answer. Mm-hmm. 
which is always fun because then they're like, so when are you going to write the rest of it? And I'm like, no, that's it. That's all I've got for you. And they're like, but, but what was the thing in the water? And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. I know what it is, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Very sneaky. And so. Yeah. People hate it, but I think it's funny. <laughs> and so going back to the construction of this book, we talked about before, it's a long book. This book is 570 pages. And there were times, you know, you can talk about slow pacing. There were times I, I'm someone who loves a short book. I'm always looking for places where writers can cut words and I'm thinking, okay, there were parts here that were long and convoluted. More than anything, I felt that there were plot threads that were either introduced too late or plot threads that were kind of dropped for a while only to be picked up later. So some elements of disorganization that, again, could speak to the fact that this is book one in a trilogy. I mean, the arc is a lot longer than we're given credit for. And while I'll give it a lot of credit that there's probably more in the other two books, there's also the argument to be made that like book one in a trilogy in order to get people to want to read the next two should be able to stand somewhat on its own. And so for me, I'm not sure if it did that, but I'm sure Mm -hmm. other people might find the way this narrative is told a bit more fulfilling. I always, when I read a trilogy, my preferred book is trilogies. I, or series, at least I'm not really a big standalone person. Whenever I read a standalone, I kind of, I get in a reading slump after because I'm like, I wanted more and this is all I've got. Um, so I feel personally, whenever I read a tr- uh, series of any sort, I always look at book one as groundwork. Mm. So I feel I don't ever personally, when I read them, I don't expect them to stand on their own. I expect them to lay the foundation so that we can, we don't have to info dump and further in the further books. So I feel like this is very, much my style where this is all the groundwork you need and you will need to know nothing else besides in this first book everything we've laid out for you that's all your background information you need to get to the second book that this is this is why we have guests on the show that are different from me because I mean I know I have a lot of readers who are like why don't you a lot of listeners who are like why don't you do more trilogies and I'm like because they're not my cup of tea but they are the cup of tea of my listeners some of my guests And if you're somebody who enjoys a trilogy and likes a first book that does lay more groundwork than standalone, this might very well be the series for you. It just might just not have hit scratched my personal itches. I don't know if that analogy makes sense. (laughs) No, it does. I think the thing too that I liked about this specifically, the way it relays the groundwork, is that she reveals things at the beginning as if you would already know them. So um, when she gives you the background about Diana's parents, she gives it right at the beginning, Mm -hmm. because if you're reading this from Diana's perspective, no one else is going to bring up the fact of like Diana's past to her. We should get that in the beginning. And I feel like I have an issue with a lot of other stories where they wait to bring things up. And I'm like, you're throwing us in with this character And if it's from her point of view, we should kind of know everything about her. Mm -hmm. You know, her life didn't start when she was 30. We should know everything about her past right at the beginning, everything we need to know. So I really like that they did that. And they basically summed it up in a couple paragraphs, everything you needed to know about how she was raised, how she grew up, who she was as a kid. And you don't have to revisit it. And you don't have to have any flashbacks. It keeps the timeline very, very linear which I always prefer because I hate when they do flashbacks because I can never tell what time frame I'm in. (laughs) 
So I love this one that it's just like, here's everything about her childhood that happened. Here's everything about her parents that happened. And now let's move on. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, if you're being told a story from someone's perspective, like who is going to bring up the fact that, oh yeah, remember your parents are dead? Like no one's going to bring that up. Like this is something that she knows about herself and we're viewing it in her perspective. Most of the book is told in her perspective. And so that makes sense. You want that context. Yeah. Or even whatever, like without going into super spoilers or anything, when she gets the pictures, Mm -hmm. it's, that is not the point in which we should find out about her parents for the first time. You know, we should already know because otherwise it takes you out of the narrative in that entire situation because it's like, by the way, if you didn't know who these people were, because we didn't tell you at all, um, this is what happens. And then it gets back to Diana's reaction to receiving this. That's I. They do that sometimes in books, and I always hate it because I'm like, oh, now I'm taken out of this situation that we're in to get the backstory I should have already had. Mm-hmm. Weird. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And then the last point, as I said before, the last point I have is probably the, the most pet peevey thing that we have, but I do feel like it needs talking about because I think other people might have this feeling and I haven't seen this expressed in too many places. And this is where I mentioned I'm bringing in my day job here. So I've spoken on this podcast before about my day job. I'm a genetic counselor. So in my job, I counsel patients due to, um, I see patients in preconception and pregnancy and in cancer genetics. So concerning people's family histories, concerning people's genetic material, you know, really walking them through that. So the fact that this book integrated genetics and evolutionary science along with the magic and history, I was taken in by that. I thought that was interesting. I wanted to know how the author did that. I personally thought the genetics sections were really poorly done and at times problematic. I honestly found myself wishing that Harkness stuck to history because I feel that I could tell science and genetics was not her strong suit. And I didn't even feel that it added too much more to the narrative that we couldn't get by other means. So to be very specific with the thing I found, you know, most troublesome, there's a specific section in this book where it's revealed that the magical creatures in this book were shown, witches, vampires, and daemons, they're different from humans genetically because they have extra chromosomes, among other things. I didn't think we needed this. There are people among us who have extra chromosomes. And I think by integrating this into a fantasy world, especially in this world where we're told that everyone else is referred to as creatures, I didn't like that connection between creatures and people with extra chromosomes. Again, I do not think this is something the author intended. I don't think that this was intended to be Uh, offensive. I don't think this harm was intended, but I did think that it showed some lack of forethought. And I think her wheelhouse was in history and she should have stuck to that. But that's my personal take on it. Yeah. See, I, as a everyday reader, I I don't really have a lot of science background. Um, So it's not really something I thought about, but I could definitely see that. And I, I think she, the author specifically just has a hard time of drawing the line between how realistic to make it. Mm -hmm. So in her eyes, she saw he is studying this, you know, we should talk about it. What does this mean? You know, provide further detail. It's, she definitely wants everything to be very, very realistic. So I think that's why she included this part. Mm -hmm. 
because, you know, in her mind, she can't mention that he does this without doing all the research and telling you what it would be like Mm -hmm. and what the world would be like. So I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I, this is like, this is probably not something that's going to register with the vast majority of readers. Like I firmly come to this for the fact that this is literally my day job. I work in genetics every day. And so this is the kind of thing that's going to occur to me, probably not to everybody, but I still do think that this is, you know, we need to voice these opinions if we do have concerns. Yeah. I'm honestly just not the one to (laughs) put an opinion out there because I don't have any history in science. So like, I will recognize your opinion and I don't really have anything to add to it just because I don't know anything about science. Like literally I took a high school biology class and that's the last time I touched science (laughs) with a 10 foot pole. Um, I'm a business major, you know, they put me in a science class and they're like, oh, a business major. Do you want the easier class? I'm like, yes, please. Thank you. (laughs) Sounds great. And they're like, here's environmental science. And I'm like, awesome. Thank you. You know, they, they wouldn't even look at me and say biology. I'd be like, no, not me. Right. Not me. Get my sister. She, she's going to be the doctor, you know, like send her out there into biology. Don't send me over there. Absolutely. That's why you know, like this is a pet peeve. You all may not see this. I I personally mm-hmm. saw it, but overall, I just want to say that this book definitely had a lot to like about it. There's a lot that I personally didn't enjoy, but there was a lot I still enjoyed. And I think we've established in this episode that there are so many kinds of readers out there. We all have completely different tastes. Rachel and I have kind of shown you that some of us like trilogies, some of us don't. Some of us like, you know, no flashbacks, some of us do. There's a lot of different ways you can read literature. And there's so many books out there that there is a book for everybody. It's why I started this whole show, because I've had people who haven't read books in years, but they're like, oh yeah, there was that one book. Like everyone's got a book, everyone's got a taste, and not everything is going to work for everybody. And I still think, you know, these books are worth talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. I This trilogy really was at the point in my life where I was kind of like going away from reading. And then I read this, binged it, and I was like, all right, I'm back. And (laughs) here we go. Now I'm fully invested into reading again. I, I also think it's interesting to mention the author herself basically said, because she didn't ever plan to be a writer. Mm -hmm. She writes like research papers and, you know, historical stuff, those kinds of things, kind of what Diana's doing in her everyday life is kind of what she does. Um, but she doesn't, I don't think she does alchemy, but anyways, moving on, (laughs) she never apparently planned to ever write a, um, novel from my understanding, but she felt like she was like plagued by these characters. Like she knew them in real Mm. life and she absolutely had to write their story. So I kind of think it's interesting just from the fact that she didn't want to, write books she was a teacher she was happy with it and then she just was like oh okay here's these characters I guess they won't leave me alone until I write them down (laughs) and I love that you know speaking as an aspiring writer myself it's like there's been so many times where it's like let's drop this idea try something else and I'm like no these characters won't leave me alone that's a that's a powerful impulse you know you have to follow that even if you never really imagined becoming a full-time writer or whatever. Like sometimes you just have a story you want to tell and that's, that's worth exploring for everybody. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, absolutely. I just, I love it. (laughs) 
And then Rachel, before we wrap up today, I'm not a fantasy reader, so I wouldn't be able to provide too many other books to recommend. But since you are an avid fantasy reader, could you provide a couple of books or an author that you'd recommend for people that enjoyed A Discovery of Witches? Obviously the rest of the trilogy, but other than that. Yeah, absolutely. The rest of the trilogy, she has one spinoff book called Times Convert that focuses on Marcus and a lovely lady we will meet later mm-hmm. if you read the trilogy. Um, that one's pretty good. It actually came out two years ago, I think. Um, so those for sure. And then if you really like the way this story just kind of completely immerses you, um, I would highly recommend Jennifer L. Armentrout. Um, she has so many books and so many series that she writes like a mad woman. <laughs> she writes like it like gives her air. She released, okay, she released From Blood and Ash and A Kingdom of Flesh and Fire like six months apart. And now she's releasing the next one in April. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know how she does it. And she's also writing, she has that one coming out in April and she has another one coming out in June for a completely different series. Wonderful writer, but if you like urban fantasy, her Storm and Fury books are very, very good. If you like Aliens, her Lux novels are very good. I think it's called the Lux series. And if you really like like more high fantasy-esque books, um, I would recommend the From Blood and Ash books. Those uh, The most recent one comes out in April. I think it's April 22nd, I think. Mm. Um, but it's that series specifically is unlike anything she's ever written and it's really immersive. And I think that's kind of what I really like about this series is uh, this trilogy, um, a discovery of witches is that it's very immersive. So if you want a book that you're just going to get completely lost in, I read from blood and ash in like three or four days, each book is over 500 pages. So that should tell you how immersed I was. (laughs) I love that we need to listen to the more the fantasy readers among us because you're you're probably not going to get fantasy recs from me but that's why we have our guests on the show and so rachel if we want to check out your podcast if we want to discover classic literature for ourselves where can we find your show and all about you yeah so i am at barely bookish on literally all social media it's barely bookish on any of your podcasting channels but if you go to barelybookish.com slash connect, I've got links to everything. You can listen to the trailer there. Um, yeah, it's all that good stuff. I have a TikTok account. <laughs> I feel weird saying that because I feel like I'm slightly too old yeah. for TikTok. And then I'm like, but I love it. I'm obsessed with it. I think it's a great platform. Um, but I'm on TikTok. I have a lot of very specific jokes about From Blood and Ash. So, but everything's spoiler tagged. So, <laughs> Don't feel like you're going to get any spoilers from me because I'm going to make sure you don't get them. Got it. Yeah. I, I also think I'm I'm 25 and I'm like, I'm a little, am I too old for TikTok? Am I too old? I don't know. <laughs> I am on book talk. So like on the book side of TikTok. So there's a lot of people my age there. I'm about to turn 23 just for reference. And so I feel comfortable there, but sometimes <laughs> I like get moved and I see like teenagers. So I'm like, whoa, whoa, no. no no, no, I can't do it. Please don't. And I just have to scroll past quickly so that it doesn't like bring them up in my feed anymore. (laughs) Absolutely. And for everybody listening, check out your favorite book on every platform. Every Thursday, we've got new episodes. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at YFB podcast. I have a website coming. It's in development. Soon I'll be able to just link you straight to that. 
And uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me.